0: any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us and today we're talking about the political situation inside sri lanka and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by writer india samarjeeva Indy, thanks so much for joining us
1: Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Mira, do you want to say hi? Okay, my son is there. Hello from Sri Lanka, everyone.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. and. In, the, in Sri Lanka, there have been some very intense uh, protests happening uh, uh, as people continue to demand the resignation uh, of the government led by uh, Gota Baya Rajapaksa. And here recently, we even saw the uh, uh, entire cabinet, except for the prime minister, Mahinda uh, Rajapaksa, actually resigned. And I mean, we've been seeing these uh, big marches and demonstrations in major cities like Colombo, uh, and candy, And I was hoping you could help us understand just what is happening inside Sri Lanka. Uh, What led up uh, to these protests and these calls for uh, Gotobaya to to step down and, and how it's been unfolding up until this point?
1: So, I mean, I'll take you to the immediate run up. And then, of course, there's a longer like 40 year run up to that. But I'd say like the protests. Look, I can tell you about one night. So we've been having protests, uh, sorry, uh, power cuts. First, it was like two hours, three hours, four hours, six hours, and then it got up to about 12, 13 hours, right? So people put up with it up to those points. I'll get into why we had the power cuts in a minute. But then there was one night when um, they had power cuts at night going up to about 12 o'clock. So for everybody in the country, it was just hard to put our kids to sleep, right? And then if we finally get them down, then there was another power cut at three in the morning and then like the kids are up again screaming and that's for me. And I think a lot of people was kind of a, a breaking point. And then after that, people. So look, my son is four. And then I explained to him, you know, that we're having power cuts. And I also explained to him that the that, that Gota, the president, he doesn't have power cuts because they didn't cut power to his neighborhood. And my son said something that would get him arrested because he, you know, he was angry at, at that inequity. So I think a lot of people felt like that. And so they went to where the president lived and they protested there. And then cops came and tear gassed and water cannoned them. And then like I think some people on their side instigated like burning a bus or whatever. And And since then, things have like really kicked off. But I mean, people have been like protesting in smaller ways for about a month now. Things have been getting bad for a while.
0: Definitely. And I was hoping you could get into like that uh, uh, multi-year sort of decades running buildup to what we're uh, seeing in Sri Lanka uh, right now in the as I mean, you know, these sorts of uh, explosions of resistance don't uh, just come out of nowhere. And I'm just interested in that historical context.
1: So I'll give you my interpretation of it. There's definitely different interpretations. And uh, if you want to read more about it, there's this economist named Dr. Ahilan Kadiragama, who's good to follow, or someone called Yolani Fernando. So my interpretation of it is that starting around the 1980s, Sri Lanka is a democratic socialist republic. But around the 1980s, we started opening up to essentially neoliberalism. And we were one of the first countries to do that. And since that point, like we didn't really develop industries or industrialize or, you know, do things that would produce wealth here. We sort of relied on aid loans and so on. So we ended up importing a bunch of stuff, everything from fuel to medicine to even food, And then we don't export much. We export maybe tea and tourism is sort of an export. But there's always an imbalance. And so they were plugging that balance with loans. And up until about 2004, we were able to plug that because we're technically a poor country. But we were able to plug that with bilateral loans, which are at pretty favorable rates. And you can sort of restructure those and roll those over. But once we became a middle-income country, we didn't have access to those loans as much anymore. And also Mahinda Rajapaksa, who's the prime minister now, got access to essentially a credit card, which is uh, sovereign loans, which are essentially from banks. So from your big Western banks, but they're at really high interest rates and you can't restructure them because that's technically a default. Um, so from that point, we started taking out a lot of these, I'll call them credit card loans, but these are you know, a lot of these high interest loans. And those started building up and building up. And, but we are still plugging that deficit from not being an industrialized country, from not investing in factories and production Because neoliberalism always told us, like, no, just, like, import cheap consumer goods, output natural resources and cheap labor. And that just finally reached a breaking point with COVID-19 and everything happening then. Because then tourism collapsed, uh, even remittances stopped coming in from people working pretty crappy conditions abroad. Um, And then suddenly we had this huge import gap where we just didn't have dollars to buy the fuel we need to keep the lights on. Now, before the 1980s, we built hydro plants to use the water that we have now and we're an ancient agricultural civilization but since then we just said okay we'll build we actually burn furnace oil for a lot of fuel for a lot of uh, electricity essentially running a national generator and we just counted on you know free markets and like dollars to always be there and that's what i think has collapsed on us yes that that's my explanation we basically just don't we don't produce the dollars to buy all the imports we need anymore and so our rupee is cratering, and we can't get the fuel we need, we can't get medicine, and we can't get food. And in my opinion, it's because we didn't invest in ourselves. We didn't invest in productive capacity in our own country, in our, in a, in our own people.
0: Yeah, and that makes me wonder, and you just touched on it a little bit there, Indy, but it does make me wonder then, like, what prompted the kind of uh, neoliberal turn uh, in the country? I mean, this happened all over, right?
1: So the oil—I mean, where the period like the oil crisis in the 1970s when there's a big change in society. So even America was on a more like sort of socialist bent at that point. But when that shock came in, people just, uh, people reacted by, I mean, I, I think this basically kind of make a quick buck and things that did work, right? So like, uh, what we call the, the open economy really did improve living standards and so on here. But in my mind, it, it was a deal with the devil. Like, we, we got this temporary hit of like, pretending like we're a rich country, importing cars, importing oil, like building fancy hotels and stuff but we never did the hard work of industrializing of building our own power plants building our own agriculture building our own factories we, we just skipped that hard work so it it was an it was a shortcut it was a 40 year shortcut but now we've hit the long term and they, and now it's pretty rough it's happened everywhere
0: yeah yeah sure and you know uh we saw that you know, one of the main slogans seemingly of, uh, of the street moving in Sri Lanka appears to be, you know, a go home, go So, you know, obviously th- this frustration being aimed at the government. And you talked about this very palpable frustration amongst the people with the power cuts and this uh, sort of uh, escalating economic crisis there. But I'm also wondering, you know, what else are some of the demands or or the slogans or the narratives that we're sort of hearing emerging from the streets in terms of you know, how they see, you know, the ship to be righted, if you will, like, uh, like, what do you see as sort of the um, potential way to help resolve some of these uh, contradictions we're, we're seeing in the country? And, you know, how do you see the people in the streets sort of grappling with that?
1: So most people like me who are rich in English speaking, or I don't know most, but a, a lot of people like me, would they're just saying go to the IMF, they're saying you should have gone to the IMF a year ago, the IMF's gonna bail us out, like we need to go to the IMF. And I'd say that represents the main opposition party, the SJB as well, and Harsha and de Silva, who I mean, he's actually a friend of mine, but I don't agree with him on this. Um, but so, so they're saying go to the IMF. and But to, to me, I'll just give you my opinion on that because I'm here, but we've been to the IMF 16 times. And 70% of these sovereign bank loans were taken out under IMF programs. And I, the IMF is like no friend of, of poor countries like ours. Like the IMF serves serves creditors, right? there's there to make sure they get their money, and you know they get like their pound of flesh from us. So they'll just cut social services, government government programs. They won't ever like invest in the country. You know what they do in in white countries? Like when white countries run into a problem, they invest their way out. But for poor countries, the recipe is always austerity, and so we we end up stuck in this in this debt trap. But so among people like me, they would say, you know, we just need to go to the IMF. We need to restructure. What We structure our economy. What that means, I don't know. It usually just means firing people. Um, but I would say the demands on the street are actually very different, right? So there's some other people I talked to. Uh, it's the Inter-University Students Federation. Now, these guys have been protesting since 1978. So, I mean, different batches of students. So since the country first, quote-unquote, opened up. And they've been saying, no, we need to invest in health. We need to invest in education. We need to invest in, like, government jobs. So so they've been saying that for 40 years. And their demands are very different, and so th- their demands are more like what I'm saying, which is that like we need to put the socialists back in democratic socialist uh, Rep- republic of Sri Lanka, and then we need to invest in the country. But you know, right now, like everybody is just on the streets, and it's, there isn't like a clear opinion on that. But what people really want, I mean, look honestly, what I'll say is what people really want is they they kind of want to just go back to normal. I would say that people want to be able to put gas in their tank. They don't want to think about okay, maybe we can't use private cars anymore. Maybe we have to use trains and public transport. People just want the power cuts to go away. They don't really want to think about, okay, maybe we've spend 10 years building solar and renewable energy that we have here and that we can't keep importing oil and coal. I think people just want the the pain to go away, which I understand. But in my opinion, we have some some painful decisions and painful investments to make.
0: Yeah. And I'm also curious, Indy, how do you situate what's happening in Sri Lanka? with other dynamics unfolding uh, elsewhere in the region and in South Asia. So, I mean, is what we're seeing in Sri Lanka, you know, in any way connected to conditions, you know, in India or, you know, other countries sort of in that part of the world? Because, I mean, it seems that, uh, you know, it may sort of be seeing somewhat (laughs) similar dynamics, even if, you know, the uh, uh, impacts may not necessarily always be the same.
1: So so I'll just say two things about that. One is I think we're living through something like the 1970s oil crisis, which impacted the whole world. So there are just systemic shocks running through capitalism right now. There's COVID-19. There's war. There's, like, supply chains buckling. There's conflict between major powers like China and America. And that's all just, like, rippling around everywhere. So and the other thing I would say is that I think Sri Lanka is kind of the canaries in, in the coal mine. Uh, just to connect it to say like America America's been living beyond its means in the same way that Sri Lanka has. But America has a has a fiat currency and you can just print your money you can print your way out of it. So we're the canaries in the coal mine where we're like the as we like follow this neoliberal stuff without you know being able to print our own money. And so but and so we just like have to take the pain. We can't print out of it. But the same, you know, economic fundamental problems are there in many countries around the world. And this feeds into the climate change as well, right? Like, we've all been kind of, our, our economies are fundamentally screwed up and we're papering it over with money and like with printed money and like nonsense. But at some point you have to pay the piper and poor countries have to pay the piper first. But in my opinion, this is, this collapse in capitalism will eventually come for everyone.
0: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I, I think that's, I think that's true. And, you know, maybe this is an aside, Indy, but, but I'm very interested when you um, talk about uh, Sri Lanka as a democratic socialist country, sort of before this uh, neoliberal turn, and, and uh, how it was, you know, kind of part of a, a broader global political trend. And we really don't hear much or know much at all about Sri Lanka, you know, here in uh, the U.S. at least. So I was hoping you could sort of explain some more uh, about that, how Sri Lanka sort of arrived at that democratic socialist uh, uh, character and, you know, how it sort of uh, uh, impacted conditions in the country there.
1: So in Sri Lanka, there were real movements on the street that that sort of demanded it. So there were like proper, like leftist communist movements that tried to take over the country multiple times. And so I mean, they were in protests at one point. I think this is in the, like, right soon after independence, right? The, 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 the leftist protests were so strong that the government retreated to a British boat out in the water because they were, like, that scared. So there was pressure. So it's not like the the elites that took over after colonialism, like, just decided to do this because they were nice. People really pushed for land reform. That is for the big estates being broken up. People really push for healthcare, for public education, and so after after colonialism, our life expectancy increased a lot after getting just like molested by the British for a long time, and our our health like even our our health metrics are still pretty quite good. We have a similar life expectancy to the United States, um, so there is a lot of good that happened in Sri Lanka, but then you know we also had that colonial hangover of divide and conquer, so. We had we had like real racial tensions and that spilled into war and that that screwed a lot of stuff up and rather than having Class struggle we had racial struggle, which is also what's played out across the world in many ways
0: Yeah, and I'm also wondering, you know swinging back to the current moment I mean you talked about the power outages and and how it uh, impacts the children and things like this. I mean And I believe you also talked about fuel shortages, but I mean, you know, like what else are people sort of grappling with they're on the ground in terms of, you know, conditions that have uh, uh, sparked these protests, you think?
1: So I'm telling you my experience, which just so you can understand, you know, on a personal level. Sure. But I've got it very easy. I'm, I'm quite rich in Sri Lanka. We're quite privileged. I actually like earn in dollars because I, I write online for a lot of people. This is just like devastating. So even right now, I, I told you how we have a pretty good healthcare system, but we're running out of medicine because medicine is an import. So doctors now are, they're talking about how they're running out of neonatal like ventilator tubes, you know, for premature babies. We have a very low infant mortality rate, but that's changing. So, and doctors are like losing patients now because you got to understand most things in this, in this country come off a boat. And if we don't have dollars, we can't get them off the boat. So it's, 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 it hits it's, everything. And, and fuel is just another input into a lot of things. So to give you another example, my father-in-law, he uh, he he like he, he runs a feed factory, so they make animal feed. But when they have power cuts, they can't make animal feed. And then so those cows don't get food, so they don't produce milk. And then there's a double whammy because, you know, those, those farmers also run milking machines, which require energy, so they can't milk the cows. Or if they do manage to milk the cows, they don't have diesel to get the milk to market. And that all comes out on the other end with a child that doesn't have milk. So you can see how something – I mean, this happens everywhere. Fuel is – Energy is the is the input into civilization. And so without energy input, civilization starts to collapse. And that's what's happening here. But like I said before, like, you know, fossil fuels are not good for anybody. So people can keep, you know, burning the deck of the Titanic for a while. But eventually, this cost and this deal with the devil we made with fossil fuels, it's going to come to you for everyone.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I'm particularly interested in that in terms of, you know, Sri Lanka as like a a global south uh, country, because I feel like it's that part of the world, which is, you know, like the one majority of the, the global population that is, you know, that stands to suffer the real brunt. Of climate change, um, even if they're not necessarily uh, always responsible for a lot of the input, and uh, you know, I'm one, and I feel like even that is also connected to what we've been discussing in terms of Sri Lanka's history of colonialism and things like that. I think certainly, you know, uh, uh, the contradictions of the capitalist system are, are really uh, uh, majorly what's what's driving uh, what we're seeing with climate change, and I'm wondering how we're seeing the impacts of climate change uh, showing up in a country uh, like Sri Lanka, particularly because of this relationship with fossil fuels you're speaking to?
1: So, I mean, the, the effects of climate change, like, I mean, it's such a basic input, like below even fuel even. So in Sri Lanka, it just affects like harvests, droughts, floods, the whole place is an island. So as sea levels start to rise, we get even like inland places being inundated. Um, so yeah, it affects us everywhere. But what I think is happening, this guy, Jason Hickel, who talks about degrowth and degrowth is a con- sort of it's a growing idea, which is the idea that, like, yo, we can't like keep growing forever. That's cancer. Like rich countries need to slow it down and like come down to a, a human needs level. And then countries in the global south, what I call the global majority, need to come up to that level. But we need to reach a balance with the earth. But what's happening is all across the global south, we're getting degrowth as in our growth is getting hammered right now whereas like western countries are like going crazy and they're just like printing money like a nfts like bitcoin like just literally like burning energy to like make fake money for yourselves and like make fake art and you're having like a real orgy on the way down like as the whole world crashes and yeah i look all i can say is it pisses me off and i could say that like if there's any justice in the world i i, I think we should like occupy you get reparations out degrow your economies but down to a human level and i think that's the only way out of climate change because i i mean the way it's going y'all are just gonna just you know burn the titanic on the way down
0: (laughs) definitely well we thank you so much indy for joining us today we're gonna leave it there we'll move to a break here on by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc we'll be right back so please stay with us by any means necessary